But uh, I'm, I'm the, in the next seven weeks, as Pastor finishes up over there, and then we come back together. Uh, in the meantime, I want to teach what's called the Beatitudes, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And we look at the first one today, there in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the very beginning of the Lord's ministry as far as a message uh, that's recorded for us in the Bible. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, if you have a a red letter Bible that shows the words of the Lord, that's going to be all red. We know that the Lord preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but to preach just uh, throughout uh, a passage, I mean, just continually a lengthy sermon, this is the first. If you go over to, uh, just hold your place here, but if you go to Luke chapter 6, Luke gives us a little more concerning the setting. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, And it came to pass in those days that he went, up, went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called on his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot also was a traitor. And he came down with them, and stood in the plain, and the company of his disciples, and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem, from the sea of the coast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him, and to be healed of him. And they were vexed with unclean spirits, and the whole unkeeper, uh, and they were healed, and the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him, and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so, the, a little bit different wording from Luke, but it's the Sermon on the Mount. And what I wanted you to see is that. There was more there than just the disciples. It says there in verse 17 that there was a great multitude of people out of Judea, Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. So what's said in the Sermon on the Mount is much more than simply speaking to his disciples, particularly his disciples, but also to those that were not his disciples and not yet uh, born again, born again. It said that he came down in a plain, halfway down the mountain. Uh, one, one guy I read after said that he thought that that was kind of a little scooped out place where a little kind of an amphitheater where the, where the sound would carry. Uh, and, and he sat there and spoke the Sermon on the Mount. There are those who are ultra-dispensationalists, and, and we, won't, that's, we won't 
classify all that, but there was, they would say that the Sermon on the Mount only applies to the Millennial Kingdom. Well, that's Hogwarts. What Jesus, what Jesus said here applied to those people that he's talking to and it applied for that a very hour. The first words from our Savior in a formal preaching setting, in a formal servant, a sermon, are the words blessed. They'd heard of Jesus going about healing. Great masses of people were following him. We found that it said a great multitude of people. And it says there in verse 1, and seeing the multitudes. No doubt they were wondering what he would say. What benefit could they have from listening to this rabbi? What, what insight could they receive? And the very first word he says is blessed. Of course, the New Testament was written in the Koine Greek, and so sometimes, not that we have to be Greek scholars, but sometimes to get a better definition of a word that's used in the Bible, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, beneficial to see how the Greek culture used that and how that was used in the coordinate Greek. And this word blessed wasn't just one, you know, have a blessed day and, uh, and just a greeting. But when it was used in the literature of the Greek culture, it talked about a joy that was reserved for, uh, for the gods. It was a joy that only the gods could have and only those who had gone on to heaven could have. But he's implying that there's a joy, a blessedness, a happiness available uh, to us in this life, and you'll see that uh, what's called the Beatitudes, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven are all beginning verses with the word blessed. And so it's implied there's an inner peace, there's an inner joy, there's a joy unspeakable and full of glory. There's a peace that passeth understanding. And so when we see this, it's, uh, it goes beyond outward influences. He didn't say blessed in the sense of untroubled are you or, or healthy are you or admired are you or prosperous are you, but we're blessed in the sense that between you and I and God, all is well, and that we can be profoundly content and happy in the Lord. Even though our bodies may be 
painful and our bodies are fulfilling the second law of thermodynamics and they're running down. Our minds might be perplexed. Our relationship with other people may be heartbreaking. Uh, we can have a blessed life. It goes beyond what we own. It goes beyond what kind of job we have and how much money's in the bank. But it's an a inner blessedness that carries on throughout eternity. And so when he says uh, poor in spirit, it's important that we remember he said poor in spirit. Not materially poor. And there's nothing spiritual about being poor. We've had people come through Placro Baptist Church at times and they exhibit a, an attitude, not necessarily saying it, but an attitude that uh, I'm blessed because I'm poor. There's nothing spiritual about being poor and there's nothing spiritual about being rich. Because you have money doesn't mean that God's blessing you. Sometimes it's a curse. And sometimes it's not. And that God's given you that money to benefit other people. A guy named Letourneau who developed, a, he, he, uh, he built big earth moving machines in East Texas and uh, made a lot of money and he gave 90% of his prophets back into the ministry. So the money didn't have him. There's nothing spiritual about being hungry. If that's, uh, if you're spiritual because you're poor, then uh, we should, we would be wrong in, in uh, giving money to people. But it says poor in spirit. And it's very interesting, and it's interesting, uh, this word poor. There were two different words that were translated from the original language, poor. And they have very specific meanings. One of the, one of the words, uh, I'll angle, anglicize it for you, it's, it's, it would be pronounced in an English way, penance. Penance means that uh, we have to work. That, that uh, there's very few of us here this morning, if you were without work for a couple of months, that we wouldn't be hurting. And so it's those who aren't, you know, it's not the kings, it's not the, the, the Rockefellers, but it's those who just fit most of us, description of you and I, we have to work. You know, we're not rich. We may be well off in the sense that God takes care of us and we're not, we're not taking out bankruptcy, uh, but we, we have to work. And, uh, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. 
Uh, I didn't get black stuff on my nose, did I? Okay, I wouldn't want you to be distracted, keep you from going to sleep on me. And then there was another word of poor, and it's, um, I don't even know how to pronounce this. But I don't know the sound of PT. Uh, but what it means is it's a beggar. He's so poor that he has to beg. beg. It's uh, describes someone who's over in the corner or on the side of the road and his head's down. He's ashamed. He's uh, having to beg for money. It's not the guy over at, over at uh, Lowe's or, or um, the store at Fred Meyer holding his sign out and say, you know, need money, out of fuel. And uh, he uh, is begging there, and people are dropping money in. And as you watch him, he reaches into his pocket and pulls out the newest iPhone on the market. And when he leaves, he goes and gets into a car better than your car. But it's, it's uh, a beggar. He's reduced to, he can't, he, he's in a such a state whether it's somehow, maybe physically, he's been marred. But all he can do is hold a little handout or a cup or whatever you want to say. He's unwilling to lift his eyes. He hopes for alms. He's in a wretched condition. He has no wealth. He has no influence. He has no position. He has no honor. He has no respect. And actually, all he has is uh, the clothes on his back. Now again, let's not get stuck on this being physical, but spiritually, God wants us to come to a place where we're totally bankrupt, without hope. We to come to a place to realize that unless someone intervenes, I'm going to perish. I have no influence with God. I have no position with God. I have no honor with God. I have no respect with God. And you see, we're blessed because, it's blessed because it's those kind of people who will turn to their only hope. 
One of the greatest things that keep people from coming to the Lord is, is pride. They won't see themselves spiritually as poor. Without hope and without God. Let me uh, show you an illustration of that. Look over in Luke chapter 18. Illustrating this thought of being poor in spirit. In Luke chapter 18, the Lord uses a parable to, to try to picture this poor in spirit attitude. And he spake this parable, in verse 9, I'm sorry. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. No poverty there. They are, they are the elite. They despise those who aren't righteous as them. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican, which was a tax collector greatly hated by their countrymen, often cheated their countrymen, took more taxes than what Rome required, worked for the occupying nation, traitors. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And so he's a very religious man, very rich in his own eyes. His relationship with the Lord, uh, with God, he thinks, is, uh, is, is that him and God are buddies. You know, they're on the same page. And then the contrast, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven. He's humble. He's broken. He's without pride. He's poor spiritually. But smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalted himself to be abased, and he that humbled himself to be exalted. And so we see this contrast. The second man went away justified, declared justified by God, just as though he had never sinned. The other man is left in his, in his pride. I think it's interesting when it talks about him, when he prays in verse 11, and the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. He had no, he had no ear from God. He prayed, he prayed with himself. But the publican had an audience with God when he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Now go over to Isaiah chapter 6 and we'll see another picture, word picture of being poor in spirit. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twenty he covered his face, and with twenty he covered his feet, and with twenty he did fly. And the one cried unto another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then we see a picture of his heart. Then said I, Woe is me. When I was 13 years old and had heard the gospel preached with a clarity and understanding from probably about 10 years old and Really, before that, I, be, I understood much of who God is. And the Word of God was preached, and I come underneath great conviction. I felt at that moment, on that Sunday morning, that if I didn't do business with God, if I didn't get right with God, woe is me. I'm in deep trouble, deep trouble. For I'm undone. Cut off, no relationship. And why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, of host, and then God sends the seraphim unto him, having a live coal in his hand, which he taken from the tongs from off the altar and laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Here, Isaiah, who is a prophet of God, who whose uh, ministry was through his mouth, through his lips, through his words. The great part about Isaiah was he spoke for God. And when God comes to cleanse him, he begins with his lips. What was most prominent in his life was wicked also. We live in an easy believism age where people don't want to be told you're altogether unprofitable. What does that mean? It means you're spiritually bankrupt. It means altogether everything about you is unprofitable spiritually. And the Lord's saying something here that we, I think sometimes we just jump over this Beatitudes and I'm really looking forward to getting all seven or eight of them and talking uh, and, and presenting to you 
what the Bible has to say and what it's meaning. But uh, a life with the Lord, a life of greatness, a life of hope, a life of joy, a life of the peace that passeth understanding begins, true salvation begins with a proper view of myself. And he says, blessed, eternally happy. There's a joy that can't be taken away from you. There's a peace that you cannot lose. There's a relationship with God that begins when I finally come to the place to say, <coughs> I don't have anything to offer him. I'm totally bankrupt. People want to come to God in the bargaining position. They want to say things like, you know, I was in a foxhole and, and I, just, I said, Lord, if you'll get me out of here, I'll serve you. Listen, God's, God's not to be bargained with. There's no if you'll do this, then I'll do this. There's no if then propositions with the Lord. Years ago, I was doing mission work with a missionary in the Washington, D.C. area in, in um, Virginia, Winchester, Virginia area, and H Hagertown, Maryland area. And uh, on occasions, just uh, two or three times, we went to Washington, D.C., and I was amazed at the beggars in Washington, D.C. that traveled between the, the White House and Lincoln's memorial and going along and picking garbage out of the garbage cans and and uh, they were destitute. But what would I think if I said, uh, if I stopped one and say, hey, can I help you or whatever? And he said, oh, I'm fine right now. I'm in negotiations with the White House to become second in command uh, as far as the advisors to the president and I'm bargaining for a contract. But you see, as silly as that is, <clears throat> a beggar does not negotiate with the king for a position in the kingdom, or he's bankrupt. He, he has nothing that's desirable. And so, if we're going to be blessed in this life, we're going to have to be converted and become as a little child. And he says, and very, very, I say unto you, except you be converted, become as a little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. I hope that as we travel through these Beatitudes that you'll see how they just build one upon another and uh, verify over and over the need for true salvation. You see, if we just look here in chapter 5 and verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Then he says, Blessed are they that mourn. It's when we can come to mourn over our sin. Blessed are the meek. Follows right along. 
If I, if I realize I'm a beggar and Christ has made me a child of the King, that I'm heirs and joint heirs of Jesus Christ, then that produces a meekness in me. And, and we'll see this begin to develop as the Lord continues on. But it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is that all about? Well, Luke says that the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are interchangeable terms. Colossians tells us, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated into the kingdom of our dear Son. Romans 14 says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And so the kingdom of heaven, in one sense, is being in God's family. We're in his kingdom. We've been born again. Spiritually, we're, we're alive in Christ. He indwells us. He communes with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so at the moment that I'm saved, not only do I enter into a family, uh, but I'm a part of his kingdom. But we know also that this kingdom, it goes beyond just eternal. And there's coming a day when Christ is going to come back. And it's going to be a physical kingdom. And we're going to be a part of that. When he rides out of heaven on a white horse, we're going to be, we're going to be with him. We're going to be riding on those horses with him. And we're going to have roles to play in the kingdom of heaven. Revelation says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in this first resurrection. On such a second death hath no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. He is the king of kings and lord of lords and he is coming back to rule a thousand years and then we'll go into eternity. And so they are for uh, the lost people there that day when he said poor in spirit but he has some disciples there that day, too, that weren't lost, that already come to a place to see themselves as poor in spirit. And they called out to him. They'd repented and trusted in him. But there's a danger for us as his children to become a little proud. Let's not forget that one of the greatest men of the New Testament, Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And if we're going to glory, let's glory in our Savior. It's an ugly thing that, that raises its head in my life when I become proud of my spirituality. We are not self-made children of God. 
And John 15 says that without him we're nothing. And so he says, you can be blessed with a poor heart. He warns us, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. And if we're not careful, sometimes this, this pride in spirituality goes beyond individuals and even affects a whole church. And you'll find you, you, most of you don't travel or go to other places like I've had the opportunity and I don't go to a lot of places. But you can go to some places and there's some churches who have a real proud attitude about who they are in relationship to what your church is. And here's what happens to those churches. God says, <clears throat> I'll not share my glory. He's not going to share his glory. And he also says this, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Revival could come uh, and does come to churches when they come back to a place when the members are on their face spiritually before God and saying, Lord, without you we're nothing. Ephesians 3.21, unto him be glory in the church. It's not about what brother so-and-so did or pastor so-and-so did. It's not about the singing program in the church. It's not about how much money you give to missions. It's about, does God get the glory? I look forward to the day when pride has been slain forever. A number of years ago, I received a, a mail out from a church in Texas, in Houston, Belmar Baptist Church, and it was just on the mailing list. It was for a youth fellowship. Of course, I wasn't going to pack up the youth here and go to Belmar Baptist Church in Houston. But they were going to have a youth fellowship, and... Uh, they were going to have some competition. And there were going to be prizes given for the best singing group of the churches that came, for the best solo, for the best Bible storytelling. There were going to be rewards given for the best preaching. But there was no reward to be given for being humble and spirit.
Let's not forget that it's by the grace we are what we are. Let's not forget that God says to go up in his kingdom, we need to go down. Let's not forget that God said the greatest of all in his kingdom is a servant of all. Let us not forget that when we serve others, we've only done what our duty is to do. Let's not forget that humility comes before grace. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And so, how do I uh, become poor in spirit? How do I get to the place that I can plug into this happiness this that was only reserved for the gods in the Hebrew or the Greek language? How do I, how do I obtain being poor in spirit. Well, it has to do with our how we go about in our comparing comparing ourselves. I can always find someone that I dominate over in certain characteristics and certain deeds and certain behavior. But the Lord said those that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. But when I compare myself with God and he says be ye holy as I am holy there's a poverty comes over my soul and Isaiah says but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness are filthy rags and we do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away and so poorness in spirit comes with uh, comparing ourselves with the Lord and actually uh, I preached in prison the other night but it says uh, fear not those who are able to kill the body but fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And though we're saved, we know we're not going to hell and our souls won't be destroyed. Man, there ought to be a respectful fear for the one who has that power. And he's really was talking in that passage to when he was just, uh, that was the first time he sends out his disciples on their own. And basically saying, you know, some people are going to want to kill you. 
They're going to want to, they're going to, they're going to be, they're not going to like you representing me. And he said, don't fear them. You fear me. And someone has said that, that the fear of God removes fear of everything else. And if I have a great fear of God, I have no fear for mankind. But we are, we become poor in spirit. How do I become poor in spirit? Well, I quit comparing myself with others, and, and I compare myself with God, and I realize, Lord, without you, I'm nothing. Lord, I need you. Lord, nothing's going to be accomplished here in this place without you. And then secondly, and when I preached this, I, I kind of got uh, a dramatic, or, or I wanted to picture exactly what it's saying here. And, and I don't remember, I fell down on my knees, but uh, it's like, here's a, here's a guy in poverty. He's, he's down on his knees. He's not looking around. He's just hoping that someone will see him and someone will aid him and someone would drop a penny in his cup. And what can he do? When we're poor, when we're poor in spirit, what can we do? Well, we can cry out to God. And though I never worded these words vocally in my heart, I did. And basically that morning, a 13-year-old boy when I was saved, my heart was crying. Lord, help me. Help me. Lord, save me. Or without you, I have no hope. You see, a lot of times churches want to make the walk down the aisle or the counseling in the, in the inquiry room where people are concerned for their soul. We want to make it sterile. We want to make it easy. But when I'm dying... When I'm bankrupt, when I have no resources, when I have no friends, when I have no hope, I go to the only one that can help me and I say, Lord, help me. That's repentance, you understand? Lord, save me. I gave this illustration when I preached too. There was an artist who was wanting to paint a picture of the prodigal son as he came back from the pig pen as a beggar. And he saw this man in the street of the city that he was in, a beggar on the street, disheveled, 
dirty. down and he approached him and said could you come to my studio tomorrow and pose for me I want to paint a picture of you and I'll, I'll pay you well if you'll come and so he came the next day at that point in time all washed up cleanly shaven and the artist didn't recognize him and he said who are you and he says I'm the beggar he said I thought I'd get cleaned up before I got painted and the artist said to him I can't use you I'll give that to illustrate this There's no merit with God. There's no usefulness of your life with God if you try to clean it up before you go to meet him. Clean it up before him. Because if you're trying that, you've not realized how bankrupt you are. And if you've been born again here this morning, surely something like this ought to resonate in your heart. Something that John Newton said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And John Newton's trying to express that song. This verse, I'm extremely happy because I'm a child of the king. Last, uh, last fall, I, I taught these lessons down in the Nilchik, and, and I'm uh, looking forward to teaching them again. How that just in very short phrases, God pounds home such great truths. And... Uh, I hope for you that are able to hear these. Some of you will be back over on the other side next week. But that they're life-changing. And every time I do them myself, it brings me back more to a position where I can be used to the Lord. Because He's not going to share His glory with me. All right? If you're not saved here this morning, understand that before God, there's nothing about you that has any merit. And may God bring you to a place of great poverty in your soul. It brings you to a place where you're desperate. You're absolutely desperate. And all you can do is cry out, Lord, save me. <laughs> and he will. You're dismissed.